So we are jumping into chapter 8. And I have to say this before we get into uh, chapter 8. Many of your Bibles may have this section. It's the section that has the account, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And there's 11 verses that we're going to cover. And in, and in your Bible, there may be brackets around her. You may have a footnote that's in that, within this story. And so I want to tell you why there's a footnote. Just briefly mention uh, why there's a footnote and why I'm going to uh, still preach this section. So, so first of all, it's bracketed because uh, there's many scholars who believe that this section, uh, John 8, 1 through 11, should not be in John 8. Uh, and if you look what we, where we were at last week in John chapter 7, the conclusion uh, of John 7, uh, or, or I should say the, the last verse we covered, picks up very nicely right after this account that we're going to look at. It's like the thought doesn't, doesn't end, like it just conclu- it, it flows right in, and, and you'll see next week when we pick up. Uh, the, in, the, in the next message. And so this section, this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, uh, those who translate scripture, those who study it, the scholars who study uh, uh, where, we get, where we get the Bible, how we get the Bible, what is to be included in scripture, this account is not in the earliest of Greek manuscripts. It is in many, many of the Greek Greek manuscripts, but it's not in the earliest of those manuscripts. And so there's some scholars, there's a split, some who who believe that it should not be included, and and, and a lot of them believe that it should. And so what is what is true of this section, and, and the reason why we're going we're gonna to look at it, we're going to unpack it, is that there's nothing in this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery that contradicts Scripture. There's nothing in this story that would say that it, it, it did not happen. Many scholars believe that it is an actual story that did happen. Uh, and there's nothing in here that contradicts from major doctrine of our faith. That actually, it, it, it confirms all that we know of Christ and what we've been studying in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And so what, what, I, what I could do is I could do a message on why we can trust the Bible, and I could have done a, a single message, and we'll do that at some point. Uh, but I believe that this section here is, is such an impactful story, and I do believe that it did happen, and, and I believe that there's, there's enough scholarship that, that's out there for, for me to preach a sermon on it. You know, for me to preach a sermon, what I'm saying is, is that I believe this is the Word of God. And if I didn't believe this was the word of God, this story, I would not preach it. Uh, and so I do believe this is holy scripture. It's just that it's not all the earliest manuscripts that are from Greek that were translated to English have this story. But there's enough of them and there's enough scholarship out there that warrants us diving into this text and seeing what we can learn about Jesus. Does that make sense? Probably have a little bit more questions than you started with, but we can, we can deal with that at a, another date talking about how we got our Bible and why we can trust it. But we're going to look at this section, The Woman Caught in the Act of Adultery. And I titled the message, Putting Jesus to the Test. Putting Jesus to the Test. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that your word is trustworthy and that we can count on it and we can go to it and we can learn and grow and become conformed into the image of Christ. And we thank you for this account of the woman caught in adultery and and what it's going to show us about who you are, your character and your nature and your love of sinners. And I pray, God, that you would use this story, this account, to touch all of us, to open our hearts, Lord. And there may be there's some here today that are caught in sin, that need to repent today, to place their faith in Jesus. Or maybe there's some here today that are like the Pharisees in this story that are 
are carrying stones with them. I pray, God, that today they drop those rocks and they would see what the gospel truly is. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever walked into a trap? You ever walked into a trap before? You maybe, maybe it's a conversation you walk into and you don't realize that they're talking about you. And you walk into a trap or it's a situation that something happened that, that you, you don't know what's going on and you walk into a situation and you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is a setup, this is a trap, I shouldn't be here, I, I don't wanna be here. And, and you try to get your, your way out of it but you can't get out, you're trapped. There's many different ways we could illustrate walking into, into a trap but the next question I would have for you has a trap ever walked up to you? It's one thing to walk into a trap, but has a trap walked up to you? Like, for example, your precious wife walks up to you and traps you and says, does this dress make me look fat? My brothers, that is a trap that just walked up to you. <laughs> it is a trap. And, and there, there's really not many ways out other than, than, than honey, nothing you wear makes you look fat. <laughs> that is your answer, right? Has a trap ever walked up to you? Well, to, to, to Jesus, a trap walked up to Jesus in this account. And the trap was in the form of the Pharisees. They walk up to him and they have a woman that's caught in the very act of adultery and they present this woman to Jesus and the text the text is going to show us that their only intention in this whole account is to trap Jesus, to test him, to put him to the test so that they can accuse him, so that they can get rid of him. This is the point of this. It is a trap that is walking up to Jesus to try to destroy his life. It's the only reason why they're there. So we're going to look at this text. We're going to read John 8, 1 through 11. And the main point of this text that we're going to see, the main point of this message will be that Jesus truly holds high the law of God. He truly holds high the law of God, and he extends mercy for those who have broken it. This is the main point of this text. Let's read John 8, starting in verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him. This they said to test him, and that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The Pharisees are coming to question Jesus. Their question is, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? What do you say about this woman, Jesus? What are you going to do? 
The law says this, what do you say? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to ask some questions this morning of Jesus. The Pharisees are asking from a a posture of, we want to trap Jesus. We want to trap him in his words. We want to trap him in his belief about the law and the word of God. We want to trap him. But we're going to ask some questions about Jesus, but we're not coming from the posture of testing to trap Jesus. We're coming from a posture of, what can we learn about Jesus that we may better love him and serve him and glorify him? So this story... This story is about Jesus. Often people will make this story about the woman caught in adultery, or they'll make it about the Pharisees who brought the woman to Jesus. But ultimately, this story is about Jesus. Ultimately, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are all about Jesus. Ultimately, the Bible, Old and New Testament, all together are all about Jesus. And yes, there is a subplot of a a story about a woman caught in adultery, and we're going to talk about her in And yes, there is a subplot about Pharisees who are hypocritically coming and throwing a woman at the feet of Jesus, and we'll talk about them. But this story is about Jesus, and we want to ask some questions about Jesus here today. And we're going to see a little more of his character and his nature and who he is. So the first question we want to ask about Jesus is this. What is Jesus' view of the law? What is his view of the law? of the law. So what do you say, Jesus? What say you? The law says that a woman caught in adultery needs to be stoned. What are you going to do? What do you say? Look, look back to the verses. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman. She was caught, placing her in the midst. They said, teacher, she's been caught in the act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What are you going to say? And it says this, they said, to test him, so they might bring a charge against him. And the, and the point of the Pharisees bringing this woman to Jesus is to try to find fault in him. And you know what the Pharisees know of, this, of Jesus is this, and this is an accusation that they said against him. They said, you are a friend of, of, of sinners, and, and you hang around with gluttons and those who, who drink and, 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 and carouse and party. You're a friend of sinners. And, and when they said that, it wasn't what we would see as something that would be positive. We would say, yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and thank God that he is a friend of sinners, right? But when the Pharisees said it, they said it because it was a term of derision against Jesus. And so they know who he is, and this is a perfect opportunity to exploit what they know he is. He's a friend of sinners. So they say, if we're going to trap Jesus in the law, let's throw a sinner at his feet who we caught in the very act of sexual sin, adultery, and let's see what he's going to do. Let's see what this friend of sinners is going to do. What will this friend of sinners do? You know, if Jesus takes a stand against the woman, maybe he's going to lose credibility with the people because he was very popular with the people. Why? Because the people looked at the Pharisees' life, those who were there to represent God and his word and the scribes and the Pharisees, he, they looked at, Jesus, at, at, at them, the crowd looks at them, and they didn't want anything to really do with them at a, such a deep personal level because what we'll see later because of their hypocrisy. But Jesus, Jesus was different like we talked about last week. He, he, he walked in miracles and he spoke differently and he, was, he, he, was, he would move with power amongst the people and he, he, he touched the lowly and he pursued those who were the outcast. And the crowds loved him for it. And so, but if he takes a strong stance, this is what the Pharisees may be thinking, if he takes a strong stance against this woman, maybe he'll lose his influence with the people. But if he, if he, 
does not agree to her stoning, then they would have a basis from their perspective to discredit him as a false teacher and a breaker of God's law. So what is Jesus going to do? What's, what's, what's he going to do? And this is such a profound story. It shows us so much of who Christ is, and it confirms what we see all throughout Scripture. This is who Jesus is. How often do we see with, with Jesus when, when, whenever people ask him a question in the Gospels as we've gone through the, the Gospel of John, he doesn't answer them in a straightforward manner. So a lot of times he'll ask a question to their question, and what is he doing? He's trying to get down into something. He's trying to uncover something that is covered, and this is what he's doing here. He's trying to uncover what is covered. These Pharisees are coming, and they're trying to expose Jesus for who they think he is as a hypocrite and as a false teacher and as somebody who's a hypocrite with the law. Jesus knows the Pharisees are hypocrites, and, he, and the Pharisees have a lot of people fooled, but he knows who they are. And what's he going to do to their question? What are you going to do, Jesus? He does two things. What's the first thing that he does? Look, look back to the text. This they said to test him that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So in response to their question about the woman, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Now all the scholars that I look at, that I looked at, to talk about, to look at this story and why is it in brackets and, and what are we going to do with this text? All the scholars that I could look at, none of them know what he wrote in the ground because the text doesn't tell us, right? And we can think of all kind of things that maybe he wrote in the ground and, and, and we could make some assumptions and things, but I'm really not going to make any assumptions. People will say maybe he, he wrote the sins of all the Pharisees that are wanting to stone this woman. He wrote them out and Jesus would know all of their secret sins because he was God. He wasn't just a man, but he was the God man. So yes, he, in his omniscience, would have, could have written all of their sins. But, but I, I think perhaps, maybe this is a connection. This is, uh, there's one commentator that I read that pointed this out, and I think this is really an interesting point. So, so he wrote in the ground, and, and maybe was Jesus reminding them that the Ten Commandments had been originally written by the finger of God and that he was God? Wow. Exodus 31, 18, and, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Wow. What say you, Jesus? How do you view the law? How does Jesus view the law? What about the law? What about the law? And he bends down and he begins to write in the dirt with his finger. Maybe perhaps he's saying, oh, you don't understand who I am, right? The finger of God is the one who writes the law. Wow, perhaps. Maybe, maybe it's a reminder of Jeremiah 17, 13. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. So maybe perhaps he's putting his finger, maybe he's writing their names. Those that have forsaken me, you have forsaken me. You have abandoned the fountain of living waters. That's the first thing he does. He writes in the ground. We don't know exactly the reason why, but maybe that's some of the reasons there. And then it says this. Look back to the text. As they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them. So they continue to ask him. It's not just one little question. They throw a woman at his feet and they say, what are you going to do? The law says to stoner, what do you say? It says that they continue to ask him. They're pressuring him. They're pressing him. They're, 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 they're pestering him. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to say? They're, they're pressing him. And you can imagine, they're probably irritated. They bring this woman caught in the act of adultery, and they say, the law says this, and he bends down on the ground and starts writing in the dirt. They're probably like, okay, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Hey, don't be distracted. 
don't get off the subject here, Jesus. There's a woman right here caught in the act of adultery. What are you going to do? They're pressing him. They're asking him again. They're continued. They continued to ask him. And then he stands up. <laughs> wow. This is so amazing. He stands up from writing in the dirt. And he says this. Look back at the text. Let him without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. They bring this woman. They throw her at his feet to test him. To try to find fault in him. He bends down on the ground, starts riding in the dirt. They get irritated with him. They continue to press him and ask him, what are you going to do, Jesus? He stands up. You without sin, throw the first stone. But what is he doing? Here's the second thing he's doing. He is confronting the misapplying of the law and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. When he stands up and he says, you without sin, throw the first stone, he is confronting, I believe, the misapplying of the law. What is Jesus, how does Jesus feel about the law? Well, he doesn't want it misapplied. What did the law say? Deuteronomy 17, 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And so what he's saying is, is he's saying, hey, listen, you want to know what we should do? Well, the law says that you need to be the ones who throw the first stone. If you're going, if we're going to stone her and she is truly guilty of adultery, you're going to stone her. The law says that you have to throw the first stone because you're bringing her to me as a witness. That's the first thing he's doing there. But one thing I, I know about adultery, not from personal experience, mind you, but from rumors I've heard, it takes two people. So the obvious question in this whole story is where is the man? How did they catch her in the act unless the man was a part of the scheme? And I think, my opinion, that one of the Pharisees was one of the ones that was in the group walking up. I believe Jesus is exposing their plot. Because the law didn't just say that the woman need to be, needed to be stoned. Both the man and the woman needed to be put to death because of the sin of adultery in the law of Moses. And so this is the misapplying of the law. They're coming and they're throwing a woman at his feet and they're saying, the law says to stone her. No, that's not what the law says. The law says, where's the man? They both need to be stoned. Put them to death. And so they're misapplying the law and I think they're, they're working out a plot. They're coming, again, this is about Jesus for them. This is not about the woman. The woman is just a, a pawn in their scheme. This is not about the woman for the Pharisees. She is just a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus, and Jesus knows this, and he is exposing it. I believe Jesus is exposing their plot, and he's found them out, and he's letting them know the woman is not the only one who has sinned. The woman was the only one who has sinned. So the truth about the Pharisees is this, is that they did not honor God in his law. They used it and they twisted it to accomplish their own self-interest. And this is the story of the Pharisees. Jesus truly honored God's law. So back to our question, what was Jesus' view of the law? He had a higher view of the law than those who were called by God to tend it and care for it, the scribes and the Pharisees. What did Jesus say about the law? This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think, Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not even, not even any of the periods and the commas, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5. What comes after? Jesus' strong stance that he believes the law, he fulfills the law, he lives the law. He goes into his famous, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, and he points to the law. You have heard it said, and the Pharisees had a view of the law, but their view of the law was a surface level view of the law that we're gonna live it, and we're gonna obey it, and we're not gonna compromise it, but inwardly, we're gonna be full of sin in our heart. Jesus believed not only in the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And so in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, after he says this, he said, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The law says Pharisees don't murder. Okay, I've not murdered anybody. They could check the box off, but they had hated in their heart. Jesus had a higher view of the law than they did. He understood the heart of the law. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus believed in both the letter of the law, but he rightly believed in the spirit of the law. Listen. By applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, the Jewish leaders were violating both the letter and the spirit of the law, and they thought that they were defending Moses. By not applying the law to themselves, by coming as hypocrites and Jesus uncovering their plot and exposing it, and not applying the law to themselves, they were revealed as hypocrites. They were, they were actually violating both the letter and the spirit of the law. So Jesus, to answer the question, what is Jesus' view of the law? He has a higher view of the law of Moses than the ones who were the guardians and the teachers of the law. So the point is this, is that they had missed the point. They had missed the point of the law. The law was never meant to be something that we obey simply to be right with God. The law has never, was never intended to be the way in which man be, would be made right with God. The law is meant to be obeyed, but even in the Old Testament, it has always been, and even in through into the New Covenant, it has always been about a relationship with God. God desired to have a people that he would love and that they would love him. And the Pharisees had missed the point. They had made the law a means to demonstrate their righteousness, but their heart was far from God. They had missed the point. They'd missed the point. Have you ever missed the point of something? You ever missed the point? I've missed the point so many times in my life. I've done things, said things, and I missed the point, and people have to explain it to me. Well, 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 well another one of my children who's not in the room, Lincoln, missed the point at school last week. He missed the point of a bathroom break. You guys know what a bathroom break is, right? You know, you, you let your teacher know that, that you want to go to the bathroom, and you're in school, so you go to the bathroom, and, and, and it's supposed to be just a five-minute little break, go use the bathroom, and, 
and he, he had to, to do more than a number one, and so he, he at least he said he, he said he did, and so he, he goes to the bathroom for a bathroom break, and, and two minutes pass, and five minutes pass, ten minutes pass, and they come to check on Lincoln. Lincoln, you okay? You okay? What's going on? And eventually, 30 minutes, he's in the bathroom. Mr. Jimmy, what's going on? 30 minutes in the bathroom, right? And so the teacher asked him, Lincoln, he's finally done, what, what are you doing in the bathroom? He told his teacher, I'm playing cars with Liam, one of his classmates. Liam wasn't even in there with no cars. So Lincoln gets home. They'll ask him later after school, so, so what were you doing in the bathroom for 30 minutes, Lincoln? Just playing cars with Liam. He's holding, he's holding the line, right? And so finally she pressed him, Lincoln. Lincoln said, okay, I'll tell you the truth. I was trying to get out of class. I didn't want to go back to class. <laughs> wow, four years old. <laughs> he missed the point of a bathroom break. Bathroom breaks are not meant to be skipping class. You don't skip class by going to the bathroom. Missing the point. And these Pharisees, had missed the point of the law of God. They completely missed the point. They had seen it as a means to their righteousness. And in essence, they missed the whole point. The point was is that they would see the law of God and they would live a separate life from the world and their heart would belong to God. The Pharisees had missed the heart. They missed the point. I love what Warren Weirdsby says. What's the purpose of the law? The law was given to reveal sin. The law was given to reveal sin and we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. Law and grace do not compete with each other. They complement each other. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. Did you, did you follow that? There must be conviction before there can be conversion. Right, so the law is good at, it's our schoolmaster, it's our tutor, it, it leads us to Christ, Galatians 3, 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Romans says that through the deeds of the law, no man will be justified. It's by faith. The Pharisees are trying to earn salvation through the deeds of the law. So what is Jesus' view of the law? The first question that we asked about Jesus? Well, he truly honors God's law and he applies it without hypocrisy. That's Jesus' view of the law. He applies it without hypocrisy. Well, that leads us to the next question about hypocrisy. What does Jesus think about hypocrisy? Second question, what does Jesus think of hypocrisy? He truly keeps the law. He, he, he lives by the letter, but also the spirit of the law. And what does he think about hypocrisy? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is very glaring in this story. I mean, you see it all over. It's just so glaring. It's one of the main themes of this text. What is hypocrisy? The Oxford Dictionary defines hypocrisy as this, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. It's to claim to have a moral standard, but privately you live differently. To claim publicly, I love God. I love his law, I serve him, but privately you violate God. You don't love God. You disobey the law of God. Hypocrisy. The word hypocrite as used in the Bible is the word hypocrites, critis. And this is what it means when it's used in the Bible. And we're gonna look at a text here in Matthew 23 where the word hypocrite is used. 
In the Bible, in the Greek, it means pretender, a duplicitous and insincere person, an actor. What does Jesus think about hypocrisy? What does he think about those who are duplicitous? What is, he, what is his view of that? You know, the woman standing before Jesus is not an actor. The woman caught in the act of adultery is not an actor. She's not playing a part. She's not a part of their plot. She was truly caught in the act of adultery. She's not an actor. She's not playing a part. She's not duplicitous. She doesn't have an agenda when she's standing before Jesus. And she's not innocent. She's guilty of adultery. But the point of this story is that the Pharisees are just as guilty as she is. The Pharisees are just as guilty as she is. Because they are actors. They are duplicitous. They are playing a part. They do have a plot. And they're guilty. Listen to what Jesus thinks of hypocrisy. This is the woes of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Jesus says, woe to them. The seven woes, and I'm not going to go over all seven of them, but, but, but it, the word woe is a word of judgment against the Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, towards the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus says this to the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, meaning they sit as being the keepers of the law. They're there to guard it, to teach it, to interpret it, to apply it. Listen to what Jesus said of them. So do and observe whatever they tell you, because the law is good, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Wow, did you, did you hear that? He told them, you don't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And you stop from people from getting in there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, a follower, a believer, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He says, your disciples become as evil as you are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So next Sunday, we're going to do it like the Pharisee style. Bring your spices here next Sunday. Give me some of your 10% of your dill and your cumin. I got a recipe. What, 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 what's the point here? The Pharisees were saying, yeah, we're going to tithe. And, and, and the tithe during, during, in, in the Levitical law was not just 10% of your income. It was 10% of your cattle, your produce. It was, it, it was upwards of 23 to 28% of all of your increase was to be brought. The Levitical law. And they said, that's not enough. We're going to tithe from our spices because we're going to show how holy we are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What does that mean? A gnat was considered to be an unclean animal, unclean thing. And they weren't supposed to eat anything unclean. So as Pharisees, the gnat was the smallest unclean thing that they could eat. And they didn't want to make sure, they wanted to make sure that by accident they did not drink a gnat in their wine or their water or whatever they were drinking. 
So they would strain out their drinks to make sure the gnats wouldn't be in the liquid. Jesus says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Because you missed a point. You're hypocrites. On the outside, you're doing all of these things, but you're far from me. You know what's true of hypocritical people is that they're often, so, they're, they're often not compassionate. Just as these Pharisees were not compassionate, they hold others to higher standards that they're not willing to walk. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. You tie heavy burdens, place them on their shoulders, and you won't lift any of those burdens with one of your fingers. No compassion for this woman. In essence, when these hypocritical Pharisees come and bring this woman who's guilty, they throw her at his feet. This is what they're saying. Jesus, give her what she deserves. Give her what she deserves. And you know what Jesus is saying in this whole story? You deserve this too. They're throwing the woman at her feet, and in essence, they're saying, hey, we caught her in that. We caught her red-handed. What does that term mean, red-handed? They caught her red-handed. It's the term that means to be caught in the act. To caught, be caught red-handed It was a term to define guilt, and it originated in the Scottish legal system in the 14th century. To be caught red-handed with a red hand. And the phrase red-handed or caught red-handed was coined by Sir Walter Scott in 1819. The phrase, to be taken with red hand, originally meant to be caught in the act. It meant blood on your hand. It meant, it meant the gun was in your hand. Blood from your victim was on your hand. You're caught in the act. You're caught red-handed. Pharisees throw this woman at, her, at his feet, and, he's, and they say she's caught red-handed. She has blood on her hands. We caught her in the act. She deserves this. You know, the Pharisees may have even come with the stones in their hands. I don't know, but it would sound like something they would do. You know, it should be unsettling and uncomfortable for any of us to hear a person celebrate someone else getting what they deserve. You know, how often do we, do we, do we live like that? I mean, it's, it, you know, as Christians, as those who, do, who desire from the heart to serve the Lord, we look at the world all around us and we see those who are living not with hearts surrendered to Christ, but, but hearts surrendered to themselves and they worship themselves as their own gods and they, they live in, in ways that are filled with debauchery and rebellion against God and, and we see them commit crimes and we see them do things that, that, that deserve judgment and punishment and if we're not careful as Christians, we can sit in the same seat as the Pharisees and we can look at them and we can say, they need to get what they deserve. But that should be uncomfortable and unsettling for us because the truth is, is that all of us, if we got what we deserve, none of us would be here. None of us would be here. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So these Pharisees drugged this woman and threw her in front of Jesus and said, give her what she deserves. The problem that Jesus is confronting with them is this. The hands that threw the sinful woman at Jesus' feet were hands that were stained red as well. So what is Jesus' view of the law? He truly honors it. Where does he think of hypocrisy? He confronts it and exposes it. Third question, let's move on. 
how does Jesus bring together the justice and the mercy of God? He loves the law of God. His finger wrote the law of God. He confronts hypocrisy, but, but, but justice and mercy, how does that work out? How does Jesus bring together the justice and the mercy of God? And, and all the things I've been reading up, leading up to this message, there's those, some of the reasons why people didn't want this story in the Bible because it could come across like Jesus is playing light and loose against sin. Right? But how can he be just and how can he be merciful at the same time? Let's look back at the conclusion of this story. Once more he bends down and wrote on the ground. So he again, he tells them, you without sin cast a fern stone. He bends down, writes again. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. So I don't know if the Pharisees had rocks, but Jesus bends down. He writes again in the, in the dirt. And they leave one by one. And, and I in, envision they're dropping their rocks. And as every rock is hitting the ground, it was the sound of a testimony to their agreement with Jesus about their guilt and their inability to be a righteous judge against this woman. Now Jesus is left alone with this woman, this guilty woman. This, she's not an actress, she's not playing a part, she's not a part of the Pharisees' plot. She was trapped by the Pharisees, no doubt, and they're trying to trap Jesus with her. She's guilty, she committed the crime. Jesus was left alone with her. Jesus stands up and faces the woman. You, can, you feel that scene. They did, her accusers just left. You can imagine she knows the law. They're telling her what the law is. You can, can you imagine the things they told her as they drug her to Jesus? You're about to get it. You've been caught. We're going to bring you to the rabbi, to the teacher. He's going to apply the law. You're done. Now they're all gone. Jesus stands up, and it's just her and him. And he says, any accusers left? Anyone left to condemn you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Wow. Neither do I condemn you. I think that's why some people didn't, didn't, don't want this section in the Bible. Neither do I condemn you. Because the pharisaical spirit is not just, was not just alive in Jesus' day. See, we're uncomfortable with this idea that, wait, wait, wait a minute, she's guilty. Neither do I condemn you. How can Jesus not condemn her? Have, 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 you ever, have you heard this idea of Jesus not condemning? Where else have you heard that, this reality from Jesus in the Gospels? John 3, 16, in a conversation with another Pharisee, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. If Jesus in his incarnation came on a condemnation plan. We'd, we'd be in the thousand year reign of Christ by now. <laughs> the final judgment would have already came. You remember in Moses' day, 
It says there was nobody on the earth that was righteous but, but Noah, excuse me, I said Moses, but Noah and his family. That was it. The whole world was unrighteous. If Jesus came to, to come to condemn in his incarnation, then none of us would be alive. When he came, he came to save. And the one who came to save is the one that's looking this woman in the eye and saying, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn, but in order to save Jesus, Jesus, and I, I, you know, I can hear maybe some of the Pharisees hung around and they're around the corner hiding around and they're listening to Jesus say this. And, and maybe they're saying, Jesus, you can't let this woman go. This is not just. This is not right. How can you show her mercy? How can you show her mercy? Like we talked about last week, there will be a time, as we saw last week, that there will be no more mercy. And Jesus will come again, but this time it will be to bring condemnation on those who did not repent and did not place their faith in him. That time will come, but that time in this story is not then. That time will come. So the question is, how can God be both just and merciful? How does the justice of God and the mercy of God come together in Christ? Here's how it comes together. The justice and mercy of God come together in the person and the work of Jesus. It comes together in the person and the work of Jesus. God has condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. The perfect wrath of God was poured out on the innocent son of God. And now mercy is available. And so when Jesus is looking at this woman, he's, he knows where he is going to condemn and to pay the penalty for the sin that she just committed. And so he's able to look at her and say, I am not here to condemn you. I am here to take the penalty for your sin. Neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save. The Pharisees were there to condemn. She was, he was there to save because all need saving. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Righteousness comes apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You become righteous by believing, for there's no distinction for all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God. And, and how are we justified? We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, listen, as a propitiation by his blood. What does that word propitiation mean? It's the word that means satisfaction. It means that the, the, the price that Jesus paid on the cross satisfied the judgment and condemnation of God on sin. Yeah, that's a good place to clap. God put his son forward as a satisfaction by his blood. His blood satisfied the wrath of God to be received by faith. We received that by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because God, in his divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can Jesus be both just and merciful? How can God be both just and merciful? He's both just and merciful when he crucified and offered up his son to pay the price for your sin and the sin of the woman that's standing right in front of him. That's how it comes together. 
Listen to A.W. Pink. He says this, God's holiness is manifested at the cross. God's holiness is manifested at the cross. Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement, the, the payment, display God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish it to its fullest when it was imputed to his son. Did you, did you hear that? Some old language there. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish his, his son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groan. How does Jesus bring together the justice and the mercy of God? If you're still confused, let me end with this story. A young lady was speeding through a small town in Georgia, 70 miles an hour in a 55 mile per hour zone. And when I say small town, I mean small town Georgia. When you get a ticket in small town Georgia, you go straight to the judge. So she got a ticket, says, you got to get in. You got to get in the police car. You're going straight to the judge. You got to pay a fine. So she gets in the car. She goes to the judge. She stands before the judge. And the judge says, okay, the law says 70 and 55, you got to pay $100. If you don't pay the $100, you have to spend a weekend in jail. The young lady is a struggling college student. She has no money, doesn't have any cash, doesn't have a credit card on her debit card. She's got nothing. She's, she has no money. She can't pay. And so she's pleading. She says, judge, judge. No, I, I can't pay this. Give me time. Have, have, have mercy on me. The judge looks at her and says, look, I can't change the law. I can't rewrite the script. The law says you go 70 and 55 and you're in front of my court. You owe me $100. You will spend a weekend in jail. And she's crying and she's saying, judge, please have mercy. He says again, sweetheart, I can't change the law. I'm not going to change the law. And so the, the girl says, your honor, is, isn't there anything you can do? Is there anything you can do? So the judge pushes back in his chair and he stands up and he unzips his, he unzips his judge robe, takes it off and he starts walking down the steps and he goes to his coat rack and he takes his jacket off and he goes, he stands in, fort, in front of next to the woman, next to the judge's bench. He pulls out his wallet and he places a $100 bill on the, on the judge's desk. Didn't say anything to her. Walks, takes his jacket off, hangs it up, puts his judge's robe back down. And he says, young lady, you're guilty. And the law says you must pay. But look, someone else has paid the price. You are free to go. You're free to go. So back to our question, how can Jesus both be just and a justifier of those who place their faith in him? Because the judge becomes the justifier. The judge became the justifier. God, perfect God, holy God, became like one of us and he absorbed the judgment that we deserve. He paid our $100 debt, not so that we could escape a weekend in jail, but that so that we could spend eternity with him in heaven. The judge became 
the justifier. The judge became one of us and paid our debt. And this is why Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. May we marvel at the mercy of God. May we marvel the mercy of God in our life because of Jesus. Now notice Jesus said, go and sin no more. Jesus is not a man that, that, that played loose with the law. He understood what the law said, but he knew that he was about to pay the price for her sin and that he could say, you are not condemned because of what I am about to do. Now go and sin no more. He does not play loose with sin. A believer should live a life that honors the Lord. And if you claim to be a believer, but you live in habitual sin, and you live a lifestyle of sin, you need to go before the Lord and examine your heart. Sinners pursue the Lord. We're not perfect. We're going we're gonna to make mistakes. But, but Christians pursue the Lord. Sinners pursue their flesh. So I want to end with this, just a couple of thoughts, and we'll close in prayer. Some of us here today, we may find ourselves like this woman from John 8. <laughs> we're not acting. We're not playing a part, we're guilty. We're not acting, we're not playing a part, we're guilty. We have no, nothing to say to our Lord. The only thing that I would say that if you're in that position of the woman in John 8, is that I would say that you need to say to her, you need to say to Jesus, just as the woman said to Christ, no, no one, Lord, there's no one here, Lord. You need to call out to Christ as your Savior and Lord. You need to repent of your sins and you need to turn to Christ because he has paid the price for your sins. Maybe there's some of you here today, you've been living like you believe that your righteousness is what will please God and not your faith. And you've become like the Pharisees, believing that it is through your righteousness that God is pleased with you. Or maybe you're another, you're another person here today, maybe Maybe you're like the Pharisees and you have rocks and you, and you need to drop them today. May the mercy of God on your life prevent, may the mercy of God on our life prevent us from ever carrying rocks in condemnation of others. May we never think that we're better than anyone else because we get dressed up nice and we come to church on Sunday. May we realize the true depth of the mercy of God that the judge became the justifier and took our place. If it had not been for the grace of God, the mercy of God, we'd all be lost. Would you close your eyes with me? God, I, I pray for everyone that is here, whatever category we may find ourselves in, and I plead with those that are here that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I plead with them to repent and to believe, to, to, to be born again, to, to, to believe in their heart, to confess with their mouth that Jesus is God and that you've raised him from the dead and that they will be born again. Romans 10, 9 and 10, I plead with them today. Make a decision, follow Christ, repent and believe in Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for all of us here today that we would never be like the Pharisees, that we would never think that it is our righteousness that is what pleases God, but it's what your word says, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And I pray, God, that we would not be like the Pharisees and carry around rocks in our pocket, ready to condemn and to judge those who 
who don't live like us or make mistakes that we think we would never make. God, may we point people to the redemption that's in Christ. The forgiveness made available through you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You are dismissed. I will see you next Sunday.